Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. For this episode, we're in for a treat. We're going to have a conversation with Rabbi Jeffrey Middleman, who is an alumnus of Princeton University and, of course, our very own Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. And he currently serves as the founding director of Sinai and Synapses, which was incubated at Klal, and which seeks to bridge the religious and scientific worlds by offering people a worldview that is scientifically grounded and spiritually uplifting. Jeff, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Joshua. It's a pleasure to be here. So one of the things you talk about in your Eli talk is the simple fact that there are different models for understanding the relationship between science and religion. Mm-hmm. A couple of, of points you made, I think, are really compelling. First of all, the vast majority of Jews, certainly American Jews, but probably Jews worldwide, simply do not accept an oversimplified version whereby either science or religion, we just don't live that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found that compelling. I also found compelling the notion that most American Jews are both urban and urbane mm-hmm. and sophisticated, and they don't feel a radical emotional need to harmonize science and religion mm-hmm. either, that we, we can live with a certain compartmentalization and we, we don't actually lose sleep over the fact that mm-hmm. Genesis may not work in science. It's just Mm-hmm. It's, it's not exercising us. But you're clearly tapping into a thirst mm-hmm. for some kind of mutually enriching conversation. Tell me about the demand, the emotional, cultural demand mm-hmm. that you obviously perceived and that you're trying to address. Sure, thank you. So one line that we often use is that the challenge is not getting Jews excited about science. The challenge is getting Jews excited about Judaism. There's actually some research that suggests that about 25% of American Jews view science and religion as being in conflict, which is about the same number as evangelical Christians. Mm. What's interesting is that conflicted evangelical Christians are going to pick religion over science, and the number is about three out of four. The conflicted Jews are going to pick science over religion, the number there is about 15 out of 60. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Because there's this belief that on one side is the educated, urban, scientific, and on the other side is uneducated, literalist, literalist uh, yeah. and, and, and religious. And because of this public discourse now, there's a belief that not only do you have to, if you pick one, you've got to pick everything else in that column. You've also got to demonize everyone on the other side of that column. And do you think the Jews who engage in the conversation buy into that demonization? Um, not to the level as some other people do, but there, there is a, a, at best an ambivalence because conflict sells in the public sphere. Jews are actually going to pick the educated, urban, scientific piece, which then means they may reject religion or demonize religion there, which for those of us who identify as religious and find value in religion, it creates a real internal conflict. Mm. It doesn't necessarily play itself out on a day-to-day level, but it's part of a larger cultural shift. And, and, and we live in a culture with beliefs, values, and the media diet that we receive. So Jews have to say, well, if I 
buy into science then everyone's telling me I have to reject religion, but I think I like religion, but I'm not sure. And so it creates a real tension. So what we're trying to be able to say is, hold on a second, let's start with the science. If you want to value science, you don't have to reject religion. And if you embrace religion, you don't have to reject science. But your tendency because of the culture that you're engaging with is to start with the science mm -hmm. first, to say, let's think differently about religion. I already know more or less how you think about science, mm -hmm. which is that you basically accept its fundamental applicability to the reality in which we live. So this is a production of the reform movement. This thing that we're doing, this bully pulpit podcast, is a conversation produced by the Hebrew College, which is the mm -hmm. Institution for Higher Learning for Reform Judaism among other things. Are we patting ourselves on the back or is it fair for us to congratulate ourselves a bit and to point out that the reform movement itself has gone a long way to bridging this conversation? And in fact, the reform movement comes out of the Enlightenment struggle with this early on mm -hmm. and tries to, in different ways over the generations, but clearly Reform movement is fashioned mm -hmm. in a way which is attuned to the bridge that you are also trying to build. So I, I'm a very proud product of the reform movement. And philosophically and historically, I think there's a strong reason that the reform movement has embraced science in a lot of ways. What's interesting, though, is that the Jewish community as a whole embraces science. There's actually not that much difference mm -hmm. between reform, conservative, and orthodox Jews in terms of their view on science as compared to, for example, the Christian community. There is much less diversity in the Jewish world because there's much more of an embrace of science. One of the most common questions that I get asked is, particularly from scientists and scientists who are Christian, will ask, why are so many Jews scientists? Right, right. That is not just in the DNA of the reform movement, that's the DNA of our Talmudic back and forth. Right, the critical apparatus whereby we're not constrained by the words on the page, but that the words on the page are launching pad for a really rich conversation and questioning. And, and I also got that. I taught at a consortium of Christian seminary. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that it was Jewish self-congratulation whereby we always told ourselves that we question. Mm -hmm. But then I found out in the Christian conversation that there really is a difference. Christians, when they encounter the openness of our questioning, are actually quite amazed. What's interesting, evangelical Christians, particularly evangelical Christians who like science, tend to view science and religion as more collaborative versus Jews who see them as, as separated out. And I think in a large part because evangelical Christians are living a religious Christian life on a day-to-day -day level. And Jews tend to say, I've got my science on the one side and Judaism on the other, and they don't have to interact. What happens, though, when there is a point of conflict? What, what happens if you're looking at a text and it doesn't quite make sense? Or what happens if there's some sort of medical event that happens? Then there's you've got to bring in the science and you've got to bring in the religion. So trying to think through how do I live a, a, a Jewish life and what is that going to look like? And trying to say, hold on a second, let's start with the science and use that as an as an entry point to be able to engage on big questions. Because Jews, particularly a lot of Jews, don't know a lot of Talmudic texts, don't know right. a lot of biblical right. texts. 
Um, and you've got to study, and, and it can be very arcane and challenging. But if you start with something that people are already interested in and excited about, my experience is that Jews are much more likely to be reading the Science Times yeah. and Scientific American. I don't have a PhD in science. I'm reading Scientific American as much as, as anyone else. I have the same level of scientific knowledge. We can engage that. We're now at the same level here. It breaks down that power dynamic. Mm -hmm. And now we're all on the same level. And now, now let's use that as an entry point to be able to say, there was a really interesting study that talked about free will. Now let's talk about that for a little bit. And now let's look at what traditional Jewish texts have to say. Let's start where we're all on the same page. So with that conversation in your Eli talk, you're, you're a very open-spirited presenter and warm and mild-mannered, but you made a very, very tendentious claim, which, because of your manner, would have gone unnoticed in its tendentiousness, which was that there's basically a ladder of sophistication mm -hmm. between the conflict model, the harmonizing model, mm -hmm. the Stephen Jay Gould model, and then the contact model, which mm -hmm. you end up. I encourage all of you to check out Rabbi Jeffrey Middleman's uh, Eli talk on, um, what's it titled? Uh, I, think I, I think it's Science and Judaism. I found that very tendentious and very, very aggressive in an engaging way. I, I love a good fight. <laughs> That's right. But I want to advocate for the non-overlapping model of mm -hmm. Stephen Jay Gould. I figure I'm in good company with Stephen Jay Gould. So yeah, he's I, uh, um, smart guy. I, right, right. I, I got a hexer off the top. The non-overlapping model argues that that really religion simply cannot ask the same questions that science mm -hmm. can ask. At least not if when you ask it, you intend there to be an answer. Mm -hmm. Sure, anybody can ask any question, and you can ask it from any perspective you want. Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, religion poses an untestable proposition, mm -hmm. and that the minute you wiggle out of testability, then it's not something science can even ask. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, they simply will not overlap. I agree with that. And I, I would say that you don't want to conflate the two. They do different jobs. They have different methodologies here. But they are both at the root trying to ask, who am I? They're ultimately trying to be able to place ourselves in a larger context. When I do a lot of presenting, when I, when I talk about the contact model, one of the things that, that I always bring up is the question of how, how does science progress? And science progresses through scientists. And scientists are human beings. You ask a scientist, why are you studying the Hubble telescope? And it's a, well, when I was six years old, my mom gave me a telescope. Right, and I look, right. the point of connection in a lot of ways is, a question, is the issue of awe, awe and wonder. Yeah. And that then becomes a conversation where it becomes very productive because non-religious scientists can talk about awe. Yes, yes. Um, and I'm a big fan of Abraham Joshua Heschel who talks about awe as being the root of faith. So when we look at those questions, they, they deal with different methodologies and absolutely they should not be conflated there. But if we're trying to say, let me look at the stars, let me look at the way that my body heals, that's both a scientific piece and there's a religious element too. And that then can create a level of integration. I think the more that we bifurcate, because that's not just happening societally, I think that happens within ourselves as well. The more we separate out 
the less productive our conversations become. Interesting. So, so you're really saying that a radical compartmentalization at the psychological or the psychic or the spiritual mm-hmm. level is not productive. So I'll give both here, I'll give both a scientific and a, and a religious piece of this to be able to talk about this. So there's a lot of research that suggests that our minds are modules. This is a, a theory from uh, Robert Kurzban and a couple of other people that, that we have different, it's called a modular mind. When we're thinking about what do I want to do, we always have, well, on this side I could do this, and on that side I could do this. We have different parts of our brains that want to protect ourselves, and some of us want to explore. And so there's always, there are different ways to be able to be pushing, and different parts of our modules are going to be taking the lead at different Dominant times. But we have a lot of d- different parts of ourselves there. So we are ultimately actually not integrated in our brains there, but one of my teachers, Rabbi Erwin Kula, who's one of the presidents of Klal, has said that the goal, the religious goal, is to be able to create integration. And we think about the Shema, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, that God is one. We are also created in the image of God. Usually that's taken to mean there's only one God, there's no other gods as well. But it could also mean that at our core, we should be integrated. We should be one in the way that God is one. In the same way God has multiple different names throughout biblical times, rabbinic times, lots of different descriptions of God take precedence at different times. Whatever the job is, God needs to get done. That's God's name. Persona that God assumes. But God is still one. It is still the same God. So how do we both integrate ourselves and integrate God? Are we, are we creating distinctions where there really is no difference, though? To talk about a modular mind, we're still talking about a single mind. It's a very, very fine line to talk about the difference between a modular unit versus mm-hmm. a multifaceted unit. Sure. And, and somehow to indicate that one is less or more integrated than the other strikes me as not just cutting it fine, but potentially sort of creating a problem where there isn't necessarily. I'm terrible at making decisions. I mean, my wife and I make so, we analyze over everything and, and pros and cons and this, we were watching Property Brothers the other day and they were there was a couple that was arguing about two inches in an island and my wife and I were, well, if we were to do this, would we do it this way and that way? Because we have different parts of ourselves that are trying to make decisions. And ultimately, there's only one decision that we can make at a given time. We can only do one thing at any given moment there. And, and we can always feel when, when we feel disintegrated. You, we, you can feel in your, in your gut when things are not feeling right. And you can also feel when there is a sense of wholeness but, and peace. But, but, but when I'm feeling disintegrated, it's not because the scientific side of my brain is competing with my religious Sure. Goods. It's because competing religious goods are vying for my attention. Two ethical imperatives mm-hmm. are competing. It's not because uh, you know the light is refracting through the window at this uh, frequency and I'm seeing blue instead of red. So I'm still trying to get at the problem. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I'll give an example of what we're of what we're finding sort of in, in terms of our sociological data yeah, of how yeah. this is working. One of our big projects is a project called Scientists in Synagogues. This was a grant that we got from the John Templeton Foundation to do work that we wanted to see, could we use science as a way to engage the Jewish community in a different kind of way? Would anyone be interested in doing this kind of work? So we did an open application. We were hoping we were going to get 25 synagogues to apply. We were going to select 10. And we got 40 applications. So first of all, there were people who wanted to be able to say, I'm looking for this kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. We ultimately selected 11, and the programs that they selected were not on the 
how do I think about science and religion? It was not high level. It was not very abstract. There were questions of how is technology changing our relationships? Uh. What's the difference between the natural and the man-made? Linking questions of like kashrut and GMOs or Jewish and scientific views of eternity and the eternal, about time. So not only did we get many more applications than we thought, these synagogues are now doing programs in their congregations. Across the board, every synagogue is getting anywhere from 25 to 100% more people coming for different programs than, than they would normally because they're looking for these kinds of, yeah, these kinds I, that, of questions. I, that resonates with me. I, I can totally get why you raise the questions as artfully as you just did and why synagogue-goers and non-synagogue-going Jews in general, I can completely... I would have predicted that you would get a great response because yeah. I find those things entirely interesting and mm-hmm. I suspect everyone else would. But... To me, it feels rather than, it just doesn't feel like an integrating task. It feels like a mutually poking task. Like, you know, have, how, how does the fact of a cell phone mm-hmm. affect etiquette yeah. or, uh, from an ethical perspective, not just mm-hmm. from an etiquette perspective? So, okay, that's not really about how science, uh, there's an interaction there. Mm-hmm. And you, you do, to be fair, you talk about the contact model. And yeah, yeah. they're always in contact. And I, I, to, I, I get it. But the beauty to me is 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 the is the provoking, yeah, uh, not the impinging. Well, and 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 to be able to look at it in terms of talkless questions, because Jews are not Jews are as you said at the beginning, Jews are not really thinking about how do I read Genesis in the light of Big Bang. Right. Teenagers are reading are grappling with that. Mm-hmm. Most Jews are not thinking about that on a day to day level. But if they're if they're thinking about questions of GMOs in their food, or if they're thinking about, wow, how did my children grow up so fast? Why is time going by so quickly? I got that one. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's And we had a synagogue in Chicago doing a question of how free is free will? These are questions that they're really struggling with on a day-to-day basis. The way that we look at this is, is trying to be able to say, let's look at these very specific kinds of questions. And we say, where does the science come in and where does the religion come in? And sometimes they need to be separated. Sometimes they do need to be in different worlds. But the way that I'm using my cell phone is very different than it was 10 years ago. And there are different ethical questions that need to get raised. What's the role of Shabbat? Before we return to the Bully Pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning including online courses, live interviews, and a new program called The Teaching Podcast, selected episodes from the Bully Pulpit enhanced with texts and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to, oh, one more thing. Help us out and rate us in iTunes. And whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. I can see why these are inspiring questions. I, I get it. I guess I'm pushing the more abstract mm-hmm. uh, fundaments, but they wouldn't lead me to a different direction than where you're going with these. We did a pre-program survey and a post-program survey, and only a couple synagogues have done the post-program survey. But we asked them, do they view science and religion as conflicting, contrasting, or, or collaborative? Before the programming, it was about 
most people were viewing them as as contrasting, and only about maybe forty percent were viewing them as collaborative. By looking at these specific questions, the numbers it's, it's gone up to about fifty to sixty percent as viewing it as collaborative. That that's I mean that's again because we believe that we need to be able to have the wisdom from both traditions. But we're finding that that rather than saying you should be viewing science and religion as collaboratively, we're not trying to do it as a top-down element. We're trying to do it as bottom-up, and we're seeing that that by exploring big questions and and personalizing these discussions, that's changing the conversation as and well. People feel enriched by it, and you're elevating the conversation. Exactly. Exactly. I, I'm glad you're doing it. I, I really think that the times call for it. Congratulations. Call like a vote for that. I want to ask you. My question. Okay. So you come, you bring scientists to synagogue, and I'm, and I'm in the pew. This is what yep. I want to talk about. Yeah. I want to talk about a theme that emerged in another video about the internet access and authority. Really important question for for all kinds of authority, not just mm-hmm. religious authority. The most common one that comes to mind to me is journalism. Mm-hmm. Now that anybody can write whatever they want, who's the journalist, and more more importantly. What's the value add mm-hmm. of a journalist if anybody can be what we now call citizen journalism, but which may be a euphemism for just some dude mm-hmm. writing whatever he feels like? From a religious perspective, of course, authority is, is really important because mm-hmm. we attribute authority to something else. I want to ask you a question about this total access world, which at this stage in its development, we are challenging authority. We are breaking down the gates and there are no gatekeepers. There's no publishing house which sifts through the manuscripts to be an arbiter for either factual truth or taste. Do you think that connoisseurship, expertise, depth, and wisdom will win the day so that as the internet matures and as our culture matures with it in our midst, Mm -hmm. it's no longer that there will be gatekeepers who are arbiters of culture and knowledge, but that the marketplace itself, now that it's the Wild West, we are actually going to reassert authority figures and gatekeepers from the bottom up, that we're going to end up choosing to pay for sources despite our potential ability just to produce it ourselves, that we're not going to want to anymore, mm-hmm. that I'm not going to, I'm going to stop watching the blog, I'm going to stop listening to those things, whatever, reading the blog, because it's drivel. Do you think that we're going to revert? I think we might. It's, it's a question of ownership. The phrase, and it's being bandied about a lot, is, is now called prosumers, that we are both producers and consumers. Yes. Ultimately, I think being a prosumer is going to be outstanding for Jewish life and for synagogue life. The analogy that I want to give is from a professor named Dan Ariely, who talks about IKEA. Almost everyone has built something from IKEA. And one thing that, that Ariely talks about is people feel more pride in something that they built. The process of putting it together, of solving it, of creating it. Is a way of investing in it. Right. You invest not just your money, but even more, you're even more valuable is your time. And trying to be able to say, I'm trying to solve a problem here. So in, in Jewish life, if we can have people investing their time and their energy and creating something new from the bottom up, that's ultimately going to create a level of ownership of Judaism and the Jewish community. There always need to be guides and experts and, and to an extent of quality control, but you don't want to stifle the creativity. I think it's one of the things about science, how many experiments fail? 
Failure is really, really valuable because it then gets us closer to what we're actually trying to figure out. When there's fear of, oh my God, is anyone gonna show up? I don't know, are we gonna be able to pay for this? That stifles creativity. But if people are able to say, I wanna own what my Judaism is going to look like and create that level of, of spark, that I think is going to be very valuable for the Jewish community as well. The failure being the arbiter, as opposed to the top-down yep. arbiter of what's gonna be kosher. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a bottom-up of that which bubbles up and succeeds. Mm -hmm. It's still a sifting out. Yeah, there, there, absolutely. There still is a, a quality control source, but it's market-based or bottom-up. Which also, you know, you want to make sure that just because something's popular, it's not necessarily going to be good. But popularity does become a measure yes. for quality, not the measure. Right. And people vote with their feet and their pocketbooks. And their pocketbooks, right. People will pay for something that is that is valuable. That's no less true in the t in the top-down model. Mm -hmm. It's just that the arbiter is placed differently in relation to the product. Right. So this is what we found with scientists and synagogues. We wanted lay people who were scientists to be invested. Some of the synagogues are certainly using some grant money to bring in big speakers, and that's a valuable piece. But what we wanted was Okay, this is this scientist who's a paleontologist. He's going to speak here. So one of the scientists was a, is the president of his reform synagogue and is one of the discoverers of the Higgs boson. So he did a presentation in conversation with a, with another rabbi called this God a Particle Physicist. And they were hoping they were going to get about 100 to 150 people, but it was a rainy afternoon and Brett Stevens in the Wall Street Journal was there and there was a memorial for Shimon Perez and so they, I mean, it's not, we're not gonna get 150, we're gonna, you know, maybe we'll get 100. They got 175 people. Why did they get 175 people? Certainly some people were interested in learning as God a particle physicist, but more importantly, Pekka said, hey, I'm coming and speaking, do you wanna come? Sure, I know Pekka, he's the president of the show, I wanna right. come and see. They're invested in a different kind of way and it's the personal relationships that becomes the vehicle to be able to really get people to explore some of these really deep intellectual kinds of conversations. You write a review on Baba Brinkman's yeah. uh, religion, religion and science rap, or rap, yeah, the, the rap, rapper's guide, rap guide, guide to religion. Yeah. yeah, and you you have an interesting critique of him. It's largely positive, but you also say that one of the things that inspires you is that Baba Brinkman is open to wanting religion when it's at its best, mm -hmm. when, it, when it can really enrich. I think we all want things when they're at their best, mm -hmm. but I want to ask you, mm -hmm. what does Judaism look like when it's at its best, when you're most inspired by it? You. That is, that is a great question. One of the things that I always love, that I find deeply inspiring, and it's hard to be able to, not many people are able to do this, but particularly when somebody finds a text or a, a verse or even ideally a word that I hadn't thought about before. And they use that as a jumping off point to be able to spin out a life lesson. And a drosh. A drosh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm thinking of a sermon I heard at, uh, I guess it was Rosh Hashanah, where, uh, and I'm blanking on what the Hebrew word was, but they, but they were reading the story of, of Hagar and Ishmael, and that Ishmael was a bow shot away. And so what, are, what does that mean of, of, of how far we are from somewhere? Why is that, why that word of a bow shot? And how much of it is that we are, we start from where we are and somebody is far away and we're not necessarily directly with them. That I find so inspiring because unfortunately we tend to use a lot of the same language over and over. We tend to go to the same texts. We go to the same well over and over. But when we're able to really go deep in a new way, 
that changes the way I think about things. So I find that incredibly inspiring. So true to your nature, clearly, the love of science and the love of religion, you think what we're best when we're curious and we're digging and then we come up with these gems that, well, I can live with that. That's a a great vision for Judaism. Uh, We're on the same page. And I really want to thank you for two things. I want to thank you for joining me and talking, but I also want to thank you for doing the work you do and for helping to realize that Judaism that inspires not just you, but but all of us. Uh, It's really an honor to Thank you very much, Asher. It was wonderful to be able to talk with you. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.